0: Welcome again, folks. This is Pat Williams, and it's the Saturday Power Hour. Of course, you're listening to 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. As always, Alan, the engineer, Dempsey, I mean, he's here. I mean, Alan is good. Gets us on the air. Andrew Hrdliska produces the show. Tyler Regan is our guest in the first segment, president of Catalyst. And his new book is out. It's a good one, Life: The Life Giving Leader. Tyler, welcome. How are you?
1: Thank you, Pat. I'm doing well this morning. Thanks for uh, thanks for even saying it's a good book. (laughs) The Life Giving Leader. You never know.
0: Learning to lead from your truest self. Waterbrook Multnomah is the publisher. A lot of leadership books out there, Tyler. What makes this different?
1: Well, obviously, uh, you know, it comes from a faith-based background. Even my publisher had asked when we were putting it together, they said, is this going to be a a Christian book or a faith-based book? And I said, you know, that's the only leadership I know for 25 years, you know, of my faith journey. Leadership has been a part of it. And so now it's really around that conversation. And it's it's a little bit of how my leadership has been formed over the last few years or last really 15 years, specifically around, um, you know, and, and we talk about this in the very beginning of the book that. I had a guy tell me one time that if I wasn't successful at the next place I was going to, don't blame the organization. It was probably just my personality. Well, Pat, that's not a very nice thing to say. Yeah. (laughs) But but I understood what he was saying, which was in his mind, he couldn't reconcile my wiring and my unique personality with leadership. In his mind, there was a certain personality type that was going to be a great leader, and I wasn't in that group. And I just uh, remember thinking about Psalm 139 that says, you know, that I was uniquely knit together in my mother's womb. Well, if God did that, if I believe that's true. Then I just had to wrestle with the idea that, well, does that mean that uh, he made a mistake with the way that he created me? Because, you know, I feel like I can lead. I just lead from a very different wiring. And so sure enough, I've just the last kind of been on this journey the last 15 years of, I don't think that's true. You know, I really believe that uh, God's unique calling in my life has to be connected to that unique wiring.
0: The book opens with a charge, and in there, in that area, you write, it's just your personality, you are uniquely created to lead, and divine directive, you are divinely called to lead. Uh, tell us about that opening.
1: Yeah, it, it, um, at Catalyst events, the so Catalyst, we do uh, leadership events all over the country, and uh, John Maxwell started it uh, mm-hmm. 20 years ago. This is actually our 20-year anniversary. And uh, it's for next generation leaders, and, and one of the things we pray as a team is, Lord, would you let grace and life flow from our stage and not be required for it? So there's a proper uh, direction for the flow of life at our events. Well, it just really started me thinking about leadership, and I really feel like it's it's very much the same thing, that we're called to lead in a way that life is flowing one direction, which is towards others. Now, there are going to be times in our leadership, and I'm sure, Pat, as you have led in, in different spheres that you've had the same thing where, you know, I have a bad day or I make some mistakes. Well, that requires life to turn and flow a little different direction, but let's not let that be the constant position, you know? And so uh, it comes down to the, again, like I said, the personality thing, your unique wiring, but the divine directive to me is as believers, we are called to lead at a different level. And, uh, you know, for, um, for a long time, when, it, when I think about, believers, I have, I think of a friend of mine who was a part of our church and, uh, you know, had just kind of really gone into into a relationship with Jesus. And that was, um, a really big deal. And so he was serving, he was doing these things. And then he made, he he just made some ridiculous comments. Now, if you know my friend, you would know that's what he does. (laughs) Like he's, he's not there yet. You know, he's, he's, he's working out his salvation. Anyway, uh, he was asked to, to leave, which, again, I would have probably done the same thing. It was just how it was handled. It was such a poor leadership uh, moment that it, it really affected his faith. And so I, I like to say this a lot, that I don't know too many people that have walked away from Jesus because of Jesus, but I know a lot that have walked away because of those of us that represent Jesus. How we lead in a, a um, Christian environment matters too, because it affects people's faith. And so that's why I feel like we each have a divine directive. Lead at a level that represents God in a way that brings Him glory.
0: Our guest is Tyler Reagan. Uh, the name of the book, "The Life Giving Leader." Uh, Tyler, the book breaks down into four parts. Part one is simply called "Leading from Your Truest Self," and you write about no regrets, and made especially for leadership. Uh, what are you covering there? Yeah,
1: really, it's it's. Uh, th- there's a story I tell. There's a lady um, uh, who was a hospice nurse in Australia, and for seven years uh, on people's deathbed, I know it sounds morbid, but she would ask them, what is their biggest regret in life? And Pat, I think if you and I were sitting at the table kind of brainstorming what we think the answer would be, we'd probably come up with, we worked too much, we were gone from home too much, we didn't make enough money, some of these things. But there wasn't even a close second to what um, really became the number one answer. The number one answer was, I was never my truest self, basically. In other words, I I never felt like I could be myself, but, you know, at work, I had to be this person. My family expected me to be this person and they never felt comfortable. Well, that's a pretty serious regret in life. And I just feel like leadership is the same way that if if we spend our, spend our wheels as a leader and work really hard to be everything everybody wants us to be versus who we are uniquely made to be, we're going to get to the same uh, situation where we're going to get to the end of our life and be like, okay, hold on a second. I never felt like myself. And to me, that is just a sad, sad regret. And so uh, one of my calls, I feel like, is to call out the uniqueness in my team and the people around me. And that's that's a life giving thing is to say, hey, uh, Luke, you know, have you seen how you uniquely thought about that? None of us think that way. That's an amazing leadership gift. And so, um, you know, that that's a big piece of that. And uh, it goes back to well, how do we embrace it? How do we figure that out? And that's a big part of what we get into in part two.
0: Now, we're going to uh, move, we, we covered leading from your truest self. How about uh, the second area, releasing the life giver within you? Mirror, mirror is one of your chapters. Schoolyard <laughs> sports. It's like riding a bike. I'm eager to hear all about this. <laughs>
1: well, these uh, th- there's this five kind of step process that comes in my mind when it comes to figuring out who your truest self is. And Um, I have a friend that says that leadership is 90% self-awareness. And uh, you know, a lot of people ask me what's, what's a go-to article for you? If you were just, if somebody was kind of new to this leadership conversation, where would you put them? And I said, you know, for me, it's that what makes a leader, uh, the Harvard business review article where Daniel Goldman back in the nineties first released this concept of emotional intelligence. What does it mean to be emotionally intelligent leaders? And so that's the article I point to. Well, his first thing on emotional intelligence is self-awareness, so it is the foundational piece to all of this. So it, it's 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 uh, a the Enneagram test, which is super popular right now. A self-assessment to learn yourself and your wiring. It's Right Path or Myers Briggs or uh, Strength Finder, some some sort of, of assessments or a combination of multiples. Um, even working with a, a life coach or somebody who's helping you go. Yeah, you're you're a green. You're a yellow. What are those unique? uh unique attributes of your personality that that's the foundational piece we got to start there we got to be there you know that's the place we start um but it's not okay to just become aware of our unique personality we've also got to figure out how to accept it that's the second big piece of this is i got to learn i'm okay with this you know like i'm actually yeah i'm very unstructured pat in my wiring well that was the thing that that one leader just felt like was uh, you know not never it would never allow me to be the kind of leader uh, that God is calling me to be. But the truth is, the opposite of structure and the unstructured part in one assessment is, um, let, let's see, the structure side is precise, organized, achieving. The side I'm on is instinct and improvisation. Well, I've been producing massive events for a long, long time. That's that unique wiring in me that makes me really good at that. And so it, it's one of those things of I, now I've just accepted the fact that, you know what, it doesn't mean I'm not going to grow, uh, you know, and learn and become better as a leader. But it is accepting that you know what I wasn't made like that, and that's okay. Um, the, like you mentioned, that it's like riding a bike. Um, confidence is one of those things. Um, you know, you, you've, you've been in basketball for a long time. You, you've watched how when a uh, when a shooter loses confidence in their shot, it changes everything, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. It's, yes, it's pain. It's painful. Well, if you don't have confidence. You as, a, as an athlete, as a professional athlete, that's your that's everything in your sport. Like You might have the best technique in the world, but you lose that little bit of confidence. Um, I like to talk about uh, how Tiger Woods, for the last few years, he lost confidence, uh, not just in, in some areas, but in his body. He lost confidence that his body could hold up, and it, and it really affected his swing. And so confidence is a big deal. Now, the reason I put that before the next step, which is uh, humility and, and uh, being humble, is because, to me, once you've accepted your God-given uniqueness, there's a confidence that comes with that.
0: The next topic is going to come after the break. Uh, We need to take a break here, and then we'll be back with Tyler Reagan. His book is called The Life-Giving Leader. Uh, Tyler, the president of Catalyst. This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour you're listening to. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950 The Word. The Word right here in Orlando. Tyler Regan has written a really good book on leadership. It's called The Life-Giving Leader, Learning to Lead from Your Truest Self. The third part that we want to talk about here, Tyler, core behaviors of life-giving leaders, a call to sweat, a call to sacrifice, a call to surrender, a call to serve. Uh, Dig into this one for us.
1: Yeah. So, you know, uh, I think there are um, baseline behaviors that matter when it comes to um, being a life-giving leader. And, and, you know, as a good preacher would do, uh, you got to make them all start with the same letter. There you go. Good, good, good (laughs) good alliteration never hurts anything. So, um, you know, a a call to sweat is really the idea of a call to work hard. And, you know, we spend a lot of our time with emerging generation leaders. And one of the things there's a, there's this huge stereotype these days, um, for the millennial generation, which is that they are entitled. And honestly, there's a lot of truth in that. And we, we lead a lot of millennial leaders. The truth is though, it, if that label is on you, the best way to fix a label like that or a stereotype of a group or whatever is to, is to go so far the opposite direction that it allows people to see something different. And so to me, this is that, this is that, uh, antidote for, uh, entitlement, which is you work hard. And, you know, one of the ways I, I talk about that with, uh, with our, our team is, um, we do big events, uh, sometimes our biggest events in an arena. So we're moving pallets all the time. And uh, one of the keys for us is that um, we're not going to ask our team to do anything that we're not willing to do ourselves. You know, I, as the president of the organization, I, I don't have to be in a room working on email. I, I do. There are things that I've and, – and, and, Pat, the truth is I've earned the right not to have to do those things, right? After all these years of doing it, I, I don't have to push pallets. But I specifically love wrapping pallets and teaching our new staff what that looks like because I want them to know that the top of the organization is going to serve – and, and work hard just like they are and sweat right alongside of them. And so uh, what I've learned over the years of seeing that really matters to people that, that you're not on an Island and, and, you know, and, and I think there's not a word that would be less helpful for the Christian uh, space than lazy. If, if I'm, if I'm known as a lazy leader, that just doesn't reflect well. And it goes back to, we, we have a divine calling to lead at a certain level. So that's the, the really the idea of, of working hard, and sweating uh, uh, for the, you know, sweating for the Lord. Maybe that's a new Richard Simmons um, uh, dance routine or something. But, you know, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a powerful thought. And I've, as simple as it is, and you know this again, being, a, being around professional athletes for a long time, it's the ones who are willing to go the extra mile when it comes to working hard. They usually were the ones that, that made, um, made it to the top. Um, a call to sacrifice is the, the realize, realization that to be a life-giving leader, to be a great leader, you're going to have to give up some of your own self-interest. You're going to have to give up some of your own money here and there. You're to, it, there's a sacrifice involved in serving people. Um, a call to surrender is the idea that we are not, it is not about us. It's about something bigger than ourselves. You know, uh, the New Testament talks about that our, we are called to know God and to make Him known. Well, that requires surrender to that idea, to the concept that it is about Him and not about us. And then the last one, a call to serve. This, to me, is, is one of those unique things that Jesus is very clear on. In Matthew 20, he talks about, um, <clears throat> you know, he settled things down with the disciples because they were trying to figure out who's going to sit at his right hand. And then he says, you know, he simply says, you've seen how the world throws around um, power, how little authority goes their, goes to their heads. Not so with you. It's one of the only times in Scripture that he makes this really distinction, like, this is the way some people are going to act, but if you follow me, this is how we're going to act. And he simply says, uh, you know, the greatest among you will be a servant. And I, I just think there's something spiritual that happens. There's something supernatural that happens when we choose to serve other people. Um, so that, that's that. those are the four ideas to me that are core behaviors. If you do those four things, if you work hard, if you sacrifice, you surrender and you serve people, I just feel like you'll always have a group around you.
0: Now, and our guest is talking about his book, The Life-Giving Leader, Tyler Reagan. Uh, Tyler, uh, part four, how life-giving leaders change organizations. The Wizard of Oz, from seed to fruit. Oh, Captain, my Captain. Boy, this sounds interesting, right?
1: <laughs> I hope so. The, uh, the original title of this book, Pat, was called um, uh, uh, The Color of Your Leadership painting who you are into how you lead. And that ended up becoming this, this, this chapter on The Wizard of Oz. Uh, if you remember correctly, when, um, when Dorothy was um, in black and white in The Wizard of Oz, beginning of the movie, then they had the tornado and she flies to Oz. When she opens the door, and it was the first time, I think, in movie history that color was a part of the screen, Technicolor was for sure. They opened it and everybody felt this emotion of, of beauty, of vibrance, of life. You know, that that's the difference. That's what happens when a life giving leader, somebody who brings life to others, enters a gray or monotone organization, something that's just OK. They bring life. People emotionally connect to it. They go, wow, I I feel different. There's a vibrancy. And so that's really what that concept is, is that organizations get better when people are life giving. It brings it takes monotone organizations and makes them full of life and vibrant and abundant. Um, and then, you know, for me, uh, teaching, I love coaching teams and thinking through how the teams get better. And one of the things that we realize with life-giving leaders is they, they really enhance um, teams. And so what's even more amazing is what if you get five life-giving leaders working together as a team? Now you're talking about a pretty unstoppable force. And so it's, it's, it's really a conversation on how to build teams that flourish. And then, oh, Captain, my captain comes from. Uh, you know, the Dead Poets Society. And, and one of the unique things that Robin Williams' character played was at a very stale, a very gray um, boys school that there was just none of the professors were bringing life to these kids. They, it was just, it was rough. And yet this guy comes in and just creates such a countercultural experience because he poured life into these kids. And so it's just a, a, a conversation re- remembering the stories of, um, that, that movie a little bit and how he really, he really epitomizes in some ways what it means to bring life to a, a dull and monotone place. So if this is really where we just talk about now what, you know, now that you've kind of figured out who your true self is now you've embraced these core behaviors, what could that look like? And it's really, this is more of an imagine, imagine a team, imagine a world, imagine a church, imagine a school, uh, filled with leaders like this.
0: Who are some of the leaders, Tyler, that you've encountered that have impacted your life?
1: Yeah, so uh, I have the privilege of uh, i worked with Andy Stanley, who's part of North Point Community Church and North Point Ministries for uh, well over a decade. Started two churches with, uh, with North Point, and, and he does all of our Catalyst events. He's one of those leaders that in my life has um, just sitting and listening to and process leadership. Um, has really, it's just been a gift uh, above gifts. And then I think back to a few mentors in my life. One was from uh, our campus ministry at the University of Georgia. But one one that really sticks out to me was I just become a believer in high school. And uh, my technology education coach at our public high school, um, He he just, he poured his life into me. He mm. really invested in me. And uh, he was a strong believer. He actually uh, helped send me on a, a kind of a Christian retreat weekend that I'd never heard of. And it was a life-changing experience. And this was a man who was a public school teacher, but decided to let his faith and his life be poured into these high school students. And coach Todd Vandervelde he, now he's he's been teaching for 35 years and just continues to serve students like that. And he has a wake of students who have done neat things for, for God and for their, their different careers. And um, a lot of that has to do with his willingness to put um, himself out there and serve. And so there's there's a lot. Lisa Terkirst, who's um, uh, the leader of Proverbs 31 ministry, she's one of the best leaders I know uh, on the planet, and she just leads at such a high level. So there's been some really—I I think it's one of the greatest gifts I get, Pat, uh, is I get to be around some pretty world, world-class world leaders.
0: Are there some common traits of an Andy Stanley or Lisa Terkirst or a John Maxwell, anything you've seen that's common?
1: Yeah, I think a couple of things uh, is they are in very intentional. They are so, so clued in and focused on um, what it means to be a good leader that they have been entrusted with people, not that they own people, but they are entrusted with them to steward them well. I think all of them have that posture of understanding stewardship and managing versus owning. That's a big deal. And then I think at the end of the day, there's an integrity to them all these leaders that um makes them and separates them from others you can trust what they say which is a big deal
0: Um, what is it like going to andy stanley's church
1: that's great it's um you know again i helped start two of them at my role with service programming and um it it, it is a um it's a huge organization so a lot of a lot of times uh people be like well it feels very corporate and it feels like a business well if you're running a significant amount of income that comes in uh, you know in the millions of dollars you better run it like that there's a level of 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 integrity a little level of business leadership that's required to run an organization like that and so to really see somebody who cares about people well who loves who loves the lord but also runs their organization in a way that brings honor and glory through integrity to god it's it's a big deal so yeah it's it was a it, it's an incredibly um, well-run and incredibly uh, humble, and, and they create some of the most world-class environments for people to um, connect, for people to uh, have worship uh, that I've ever seen.
0: Tyler, if I'm visiting in Atlanta on a Sunday, yeah, and I have to make a decision, uh, do I go to Charles Stanley's church or Andy Stanley's <laughs> church, what, what do I do?
1: Well, that's a really tough question, Pat. I think it depends on really where you want to go in terms of your style. Obviously, First Baptist Atlanta is going to be a a different style than North Point. Uh, But, you know, they both have a very similar heartbeat and they are incredible. Uh, I mean, Charles has still been teaching there for 45 years, I think it is. Yes. And, uh, you know, still holds that Bible in his right hand and just, I don't even know how he holds that thing. It's huge. And um, just keeps teaching the word like he has for years and years and years, and then you know his son is, is pretty pretty darn good at what he does too. So I don't think you would miss it. I think it all depends on kind of your tradition and your style.
0: I call Charles Stanley's Bible a floppy Bible. <laughs> it just kind of it just flops. it's 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 huge. Uh, Tyler, I'm interested. Tyler Reagan is our guest. Uh, the life. Giving leader is uh, the book. Tell me about Catalyst. What 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 is that all about? So
1: Catalyst started, like I said, John Maxwell started it twenty years ago, and his his thing was as he was getting older, he kept looking around, going, "So so are the people attending my events." So he wanted to create something that always invested in, in the emerging generation, the next generation of leaders and Christian leaders, and so. For the last 20 years, we've gone around the country. We do our big event in Catalyst Atlanta. This year's our 20 year anniversary. So if you're listening, you're in Central Florida coming up and being a part of Catalyst Atlanta, which is October 2nd through the 4th. Um, it, it we basically, our heartbeat is, is to do two things. We want to provide space for leaders to become better, uh, church leaders to become better on Monday and also provide space for them to meet with their Heavenly Father because, you know, uh, it, it it's like when you're in the work of the—when uh, your vocation is in the church, a lot of times you don't get those chances to just sit and rest and meet with your Heavenly Father because you're always creating spaces for other people to do that. And so, um, yeah, we just love being able to—back We back to the very beginning thing we said is we believe that how you lead affects people's faith. And so that's why we're in the leadership lane, and we believe it is mission critical for us. So um, we do that. We have a podcast. We do a, a ton of uh, content and different— Avenue's CatalystLeader.com is the best way to find out more about Catalyst and our events and what else you can do to be connected with what we're doing.
0: Tyler, put John Maxwell into perspective for us.
1: <laughs> well, he's a Florida guy now. So, you know, I think you guys already have something in common. Um, you know, John hasn't been with us in a long time in terms of um, ownership. He, he, um, he owned it for a few years, and it's gone through a few different ownership groups since then. Um, i've spent you know a decent amount of time with john and, and but i can tell you more from the people who are super close to him he he is literally one of the most generous uh, life-giving people around he loves people well he cares for people well um, and honestly he has he has made such a you know we kind of see him as almost a godfather of, of leadership in our world because he just he gave so much of himself to make sure that uh, leadership. And he got the bug. You know, I think you 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 have to, Pat, in your career, realize that it's more than just a job. There are people that we've got to serve. And uh, to do that well, we really need to understand leadership. And I think John's one of the best in the world at it.
0: Tyler Reagan, president of Catalyst, author of The Life-Giving Leader. He's been our guest. Tyler, a million thanks. So good to visit with you, and I wish you continued success. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We've got more, folks, on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Stay with us. And just a reminder, you're listening to 94.9 FM and AM 950 The Word in Orlando. And just a reminder, faith comes by hearing. That's what Alan Dempsey teaches us every day. Tyler Reagan, our guest in that first segment author of The Life-Giving Leader. Dan Darling joins us <clears throat> from uh, Mount Juliet, Tennessee, uh, pastor of teaching at the Green Hill Church there. Uh, his latest book is called The Dignity Revolution. Interesting title, Reclaiming God's Rich Vision for Humanity. Uh, welcome, Dan. How are you?
2: Welcome. It's great to be on here. and am just honored to, uh, to talk to you.
0: So what does this mean, the Dignity Revolution? Explain that.
2: Well, uh, you know, I think, you know, I'm very fascinated by the way the Bible talks about uh, humans and uh, human dignity in a way that I think uh, is richer than any other source in the, in the world. Uh, if you think about the way Genesis describes God, the really creation of humans, where unlike the rest of creation, God reaches with his hands down, to the dust of the ground and sculpts humans from the dust of the ground, breathes into them the breath of life, and uh, stamps on every human his image. And then you hear King David saying that um, every human being is knit together in the womb of the mother. So there's a the way the Bible describes uh, the value of humanity uh, is really impressive that we're created in the image of God, that we have purpose, that we have worth. Um... And so any violence or assault on humans is a direct violence and a, a attack against God.
0: Your first chapter is called With Glory and Honor. Explain that. What's that mean? So this one, I, I
2: really kind of describe what does it mean to be created in the image of God? What does it mean uh, that we, we have a certain dignity above the rest of creation? creation? I think it means two things. Uh, just to simplify it, one it's that we're not animal, and the other thing, other ideas, that we're not God. Uh, that um, we we have dominion over the animals. We have uh, we can think and reason and do things that other rest of creation can't do. And even if we can't, even those who have diminished capacity have a a value assigned to them by God because we're made in His image. But it also reminds us that we're not God. That we're not the masters of our own faith, We're not. Um, they own, you know, the arbiter of right and wrong. We were created by a Creator with with purpose and uh, meant to live in tune with our Creator.
0: Then you move to this topic: losing our humanity. What happens here? So this is where
2: I describe. You know, if if Genesis one describes, you know, the exalted view of humanity. Uh, we, you know, we look around the world today and we see violence, we see things like abortion, we see things like racism, things like, uh, you know, racism, discrimination, all kinds of things, you know, poor care of the elderly, on and on it goes, and we wonder, so what happened, you know? Uh, and what happened is, you know, the Bible describes, Genesis three, that some kind of corruption came into the world. Uh, the Bible calls this sin, that every human heart is affected by this, and it. And it causes humans to turn in on one another. Rather than turning upward worship of their Creator, we turn in on each other, and we, we assault the dignity of others. So this is the explanation for why you have so much violence against in the other. But also gives the hope that in Christ, Christ has come to defeat sin and death, that corruption that causes us to assault each other. And is not only uh, remaking, restoring the world, but he's also uh, transforming humans so that they uh, care and love for each other rather than assault each other.
0: Now, I want you to explain Dignity Rediscovered. That's the third chapter in your book.
2: Yeah, so this is where I really describe, um, you know, God's redemption of the world and You know, what it means to really believe in the kingdom of God and the fact that in God's new kingdom, He is renewing and restoring the world and He's calling um, His people, redeemed image bearers, Christians, uh, to uh, come alongside the most vulnerable, to uh, love our neighbor as ourselves by uh, speaking up for those who can't speak for themselves, by whatever dignity is assaulted, whether it's. through the assault on the unborn, or whether it's violence, or uh, the way that we scapegoat immigrants, refugees at times, or any of the, any of those things, God is calling people to come alongside the most vulnerable. People. And when <clears throat> when the church does this, when she's at her best, the church does this. She shows the world a glimpse of the kingdom of God. It, it, so you know, it's really inspiring. Anywhere you see Christians, sorry, anywhere you see around the world where you see famine or war or just difficult situation. You often see Christians there, and they're there not because, not not for any reason, other than the fact that they believe that those people, are humans, deserve dignity. So that's kind of what I cover in that particular section.
0: My guest, and he's a good one, his name is Daniel Darling. The book, The Dignity Revolution. We've arrived at the topic, I am a man. Race in the Nations. Tell us about it. Well,
2: this is where I really talk about um, racial tension in our country. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the title actually comes from um, Martin Luther King when he was marching uh, quite often, and particularly in Memphis when he was marching. You know, he and his fellow activists sign, for Stein damage force, said, I am a man. And what he was saying was, can you white supremacists and um, you know people who want to continue segregation, can you see us as human beings? Full human beings, not just obstacles, not just problems. And this is, I think, at the heart of, of racial tension, that our inability to see uh, someone who does not look like us as a full human being, create an image of God. I really talk about how racial reconciliation is at the heart of the Gospel. You see this in the New Testament, where constantly when the gospel is, is, is explained, it's explained as something that brings every nation, tribe, and tongue together in this kind of mosaic of the kingdom of God. And, and so our really think reconciliation effort.
0: I want you to get to the next topic for us. The littlest people. The start of life.
2: Yeah, so this is where I talk about uh, dignity for the unborn. And, uh, you know, abortion is obviously a complicated issue in our, in our culture. Uh, but really, if we believe what the Bible says about, uh, for instance, King David saying that in the womb God knits together every human being, that God saw Jeremiah in the womb, uh, if every human being made the image of God, then we should really be committed to protecting life at its earliest form. Uh, the most defenseless among us, the ones that have the least um, voice, are the unborn, who, tragically today in America, it's, it's legal to, to end the life of the unborn uh, at most stages, and in most places, some states have it at certain stages. But, you know, for instance, uh, the New York, New York just passed a law that really makes abortion legal at, at every stage, even up to birth and even after birth. And so I think The people of God really need to stand up and speak out for the dignity of the unborn.
0: The next topic, my guest is Dan Darling, and his book is called The Dignity Revolution. And uh, it's an interesting title, Frenemies, Justice System, Prison, and Immigration.
2: Yeah, so we really, I think, as Christians need to think through you know, systems of justice, and you know, are they good? Are they adequate? Do they recognize the humanity of of people? And you know, there's there's two things that we we need to hold in tension. On the one hand, you know, God has delegated authority to human governments to uh, have rule of law to create laws that protect the most vulnerable. Uh, Roman says that governments are God's servants for good, for, for the flourishing of people. Um, so we really need to uphold the rule of law. And yet, at the same time, we need to make sure our governments are accountable so that uh, the laws do indeed um, advance human flourishing. And I, and I think uh, one of the ways to think about that is, particularly with criminal justice, is, you know, we, we should want systems that are just, uh, that reflect God's justice. And so, on the one hand, we want... Um, you know, justice for the victim. You know, if, if victims are hurt, whether their property's taken, whether they're physically harmed, because we believe they have dignity and worth, because they're creating the image of that we should want sufficient penalties for people who violate that. that. That says that humans have value. At the same time, we also want to look at the perpetrator and say he or she, too, has dignity and worth. And so can we create uh, systems of justice that recognize that. And then when you talk about immigration, I think it's a very similar co- conversation that we want an immigration system that upholds the rule of law. You know governments have to protect the country, have to have to protect the borders, uh, they have to decide who comes in and out of America, can't take every single person. And at the other uh, on the other side, you know we should our view toward immigrants uh, should be one that reflects the scriptures that uh, immigrants should be cared for, should be welcomed, should be treated as human. Sometimes we're tempted to scapegoat immigrants uh, and dehumanize them by blaming them for all of our problems. I think that's not really a good Christian approach. Of course, you know, good people will disagree on on the finer points of immigration policy, uh, but what we should agree on is um, that immigrants have dignity and worth
0: and value. The next topic for our guest, Dan Darling, facing the final foe, death disease and health care
2: yeah so that's a complicated topic uh, but I do think the Bible speaks to all these issues i um, you know I think what's what's important is for us to understand is that um, Christ has defeated sin and death in the grave and death is not the final word and uh, so on the one hand when we think about health care we should is people want human, all, all human beings to have access to good, quality care. Now, how we deliver that access is is hard to understand. I mean, there's great disagreement on what role the government should have, what role the private sector should have, what role the Church should have. Good people disagree on all that, but we should agree that we want people, because they have dignity, to have access to good care. We also can see uh, in, in the Scriptures that, um, you know, even though... People suffer from sickness and disease. Uh, that's not the final chapter. That in the resurrection, when Christ is going to raise us body and soul, and, and heal our bodies from the corruption of the fall. You know, sometimes people will act as though if you have enough faith that you can overcome any disease in this life, and God sometimes does do miracles in this life. But ultimately, ultimate healing is in the final resurrection of the dead. And I think the other thing I cover in that chapter is the way that we care for the elderly. I think one of the ways that we demonstrate our faith in God is when we, we point to the elderly and say, even though they have diminished capacity, even though they can't contribute as much as they once could, that they are full human beings who have full human dignity and are valuable. And I think we have to resist this kind of pressure to um, shove elderly populations to the side and to not care for them uh, or even consider them a burden. Uh, and I think, we have to really oppose things like euthanasia and other other attempts to sort of marginalize elderly population.
0: Well, that's good to hear. That's a good, uh, a good approach, Dan. As much as I'm getting elderly, and uh, <laughs> thanks for not pushing me aside. All right. Well, I appreciate you. <laughs> let's get. Let's do this one. Good work. Work and poverty. What are you saying here? Well, I think uh, we really need to see what the Bible says about work. You know, work is a gift of God. You see right after
2: in Genesis, right after that God creates humans and, and says that they are in His image, the first thing He does is give them work to do. And work is uh, an inherent part of what it means to be human. It's uh, we, we create, we innovate, we uh, are entrepreneurs uh, because we uh, were created by a creative, innovative God. We work because God works. And uh, as we work, uh, we work, uh, our work images God, it points back to the Creator. God has given us the world uh, kind of as our canvas. We, we should take the raw materials that He's given us and create with them. And even though we live in a fallen world, where work is sometimes futile and difficult, God is redeeming our work, and one day when He res- comes back, our work will be uh, as fulfilling it as it was intended to be. And I think this also taught, it speaks a little bit to poverty. I think the Bible speaks quite a bit to Christians to say that the Church should be on the side of the poor. We should do what we can to lift up the poor from poverty To come alongside them. Again, good people will disagree on the exact measures to help lift people from poverty. I happen to believe that, as best we can, that um, hard work and thrift and capitalism are good tools to to lift people out of poverty. Capitalism is not a perfect system, obviously, and there are are holes and gaps because it's a fallen world. Uh, And I think there's times that we need social safety nets that help the the least fortunate. Um, But I do think work uh, is a gift from God in poverty, you know, or when it comes to the poor, Jesus says that the the church should be on the side of of the poor, helping to lift them um, out of their condition.
0: Dan Darling, our guest, the book, The Dignity Revolution. We've got another segment with Dan right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Stay with us. Here on ninety four point nine FM and AM nine fifty The Word in Orlando. Dan Darling is our guest. He's in Mount Juliet, Tennessee, where he's the pastor of teaching and discipleship at Green Hill Church, the book, The Dignity Revolution. Next topic for you, Dan. The better story Identity, Sexuality, and Marriage. Fill us in.
2: So this is where being created in the image of God really uh, reminds us that we are not autonomous and that we're not God. I mean, um, and this is where I think we really connect in creating the image of God with the tendency toward idolatry, to worship ourselves. And I think it, it is most acute when it comes to the issue of sexuality. I think the message today from the culture is that we can do whatever we want with whoever we want with no consequences. And I think we've seen that borne out that that's just not true, and that uh, living outside of God's design for sexuality and marriage has real-world consequences, uh, not only in on ourselves, but the world around us, and the idea that the Creator has created us for a purpose that's even bigger and better than we can envision for ourselves. So, you know, the message of of, of faithful sexuality between men and women in marriage is, is one that cuts against the culture, cuts against the grain. Uh, but it, it is in line with being created as image bearers of God, that we image God uh, in the way that we use our bodies. We glorify him by using our bodies as he intended and designed for us.
0: Now I want you to talk about I Am Not My Avatar, technology, and our digital age.
2: Well, in this chapter, i really talk about the way we interact with technology. I mean, on the one hand, technology... Uh, is really an act of obedience to the creation mandate to go and innovate and to take the raw materials and innovate. So as Christians, we're not anti-technology. We're not looking past at a golden era where everything was perfect before technology took over. On the other hand, we have to understand that technology can sometimes be corrupted in the fallen world, that uh, technology, um, you know, we, we don't just want to look at what we're doing with technology, but what is technology doing with us? And we have to be really wise and discerning about uh, even the ways we communicate, even the ways that uh, our conversations are mediated through different mediums, so social media and other ways, uh, ways that technology can redeem and ways it can corrupt. And so I think that we just need to have healthy discussions about that, especially as we're you know, heading into an era of uh, artificial intelligence, an era of um, increasingly automated systems. You know, what, what, what does that mean for the way we live as humans?
0: Now let's go to this topic: agree to disagree, pluralism, the state, and religious liberty. Yeah, it, it would seem
2: it would seem odd, you know, for some that I would have a chapter on religious liberty in a book about uh, human dignity. But I really think it belongs there because uh, one of the one of the key traits of being an image bearer, of being human, is that we have a conscience, and our conscience is answerable to God and uh, when, Whenever the state uh, paves over the conscience, whenever the state forces belief or it prohibits belief uh, in any way, uh, it really tramples on the conscience and it tramples on our dignity. Uh, it's to say that uh, you don't have full agency to believe the way you want. It. The state has to step in and do that. And it's always a really dangerous and chilling, uh, um, you know, experience and, and moment when when you have the state either aligning with the Church in some way, or aligning against uh, the Church or against religious liberty. And I really think Christians should not only fight for their own religious liberty, as we should, uh, because I think Paul, actually, in, when he's talking to Timothy, says to pray for religious liberty, pray for kings and, and all who are in authority, that we may live quiet and peaceful lives and, and spread the Gospel. Religious liberty allows the Gospel to advance, so we should fight for our own religious liberty. But we should also fight for religious liberty of others because we believe the gospel um, is, uh, can compete, not only can compete, but can win in the marketplace of ideas, because we believe Christ is triumphant. We don't need the state to um, give us an assist by uh, putting their finger on the scale in favor of Christians as opposed to other religions. So I think, I think it's important for Christians to really think well about religious liberty.
0: Let's talk about this topic a land beyond left and right is simply politics.
2: Well, I saved the political chapter for the end because I didn't want people to think about human dignity as a political issue because it's really not. But it does have political implications. And I really, in this chapter, call for Christians to uh, resist being catechized by our tribes, resist being so formed by our parties that we can't think Christianly. Uh, And so I think to be a Christian, to really care about human dignity, means that, um, you know, it's going to put us in in uncomfortable places. It means there won't be natural home on the left or the right on some issues, Uh, but that's okay, because we're strangers and foreigners, and as strangers and foreigners in this world we answer to another king and another kingdom. Uh, And I also make a plea that even when we make arguments as Christians in the public square that we see our ideological opponents not as, you know, avatars to be crushed, not as uh, like it's a video game, but if these are people made in the image of God, and even as we're making arguments, we're considering the humanity of the people with whom uh, we're arguing.
0: Now, let's get to this topic, Dan, and that is your outro, Learning from the Zong, What Would Be Our Legacy? You're going to have to explain all that.
2: So this ship, the Zong, was a ship uh, that was involved in the British slave trade, mm-hmm. and one of the things that was interesting about this ship is that it was carrying slaves back from Africa to Britain, and it encountered some some trouble. And tragically, what what happened is they started throwing the slaves overboard, and they lost much of the um, many of the slaves. And when they got back, the shipping company actually tried to file uh, for insurance money and tried to get recompense for what they considered their property, the slaves were considered property, and they were, they were actually denied that. And it became a catalyst uh, for William Wilberforce in trying to uh, end the slave trade in Britain. And I really wanted to have this as a last word, just to say, what will our legacy be as Christians? Will we, will we be people who will be known by the way that we came alongside the most vulnerable, the way that we fought for human dignity, for those who didn't have a voice? Uh, what we'll we be known for in this stage. And I hope that will be uh, the story, that it was these kind of crazy people who believed uh, that this man, Jesus, rose from the dead, uh, that he, uh, and he's in the at the right hand of the Father. It was these people who most uh, came alongside those who could not stand up for themselves.
0: So where do we go from here? What do you want uh, us to take as far as steps? Well, I think the steps we
2: take are this. I think we use whatever power and influence we have and, and giftings and opportunities uh, to step into that calling as Christians to both proclaim the good news of the gospel and to demonstrate the gospel by getting involved in uh, fighting for the dignity of the most vulnerable. So, so for most people, that means just uh, quietly uh, participating in their local communities, whether it's a pregnancy resource center, whether it's a drive to help the poor, whether it's improving education, uh, it could be poverty alleviation efforts, a variety of different things. What is God calling me to do specifically, and what can I do? How can I give myself on behalf of those who, uh, who have no voice? And I think when we do that, when God's people do that, it's amazing that God's work through the Church is done mostly through ordinary people, mostly through people that the world uh, actually doesn't really know that don't have a big platform. Um, and I think, I think that's really the next step.
0: Dan, tell me about the church in Tennessee, uh, where you teach and disciple.
2: So I have two roles, essentially. I, my primary role is I work for the Southern Baptist Convention, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, a um, Vice President of Communication. We represent Southern Baptists in Washington, D.C., and in, uh, uh, you know, in the, in, in the uh, public square. And we equip pastors and church leaders on a think-through moral and ethical issues. And I also have a role uh, as an associate pastor at Green Hill Church in um, Juliet, Tennessee, so I'll, I'll preach from time to time, help lead our discipleship efforts, and help uh, as one of the elders leading the direction of the church. I really believe, you know, even though I'm involved in a large national organization, that God's primary work is in, in local churches around the world. Uh, doing, uh, that's where God does His best work.
0: Do you like people to reach out to you?
2: I would, yeah. So you can find my website at danieldarling.com. I'm on Twitter at at Dan Darling. And uh, you can also find my book, uh, The Dignity Revolution, on Amazon or other places you buy books. Will we have have time to talk any basketball?
0: (laughs) Dan, we'll do that off-air. We've run out of time. Uh, Dan Darling, our our guest, author of The Dignity Revolution. Uh, We've got to wrap up right after this. On the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, it's 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word, in Orlando. Thanks for joining us, folks, here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Tyler Reagan was with us in the first segment. We talked leadership with him. Uh, His book, The Life-Giving Leader. And then Dan Darling plugged in from Tennessee, and we uh, talked about the Dignity Revolution please visit my website. It's patwilliams.com. The Twitter page, Orlando Magic Pat. And I've got a new book that's just come out. It's called Character Carved in Stone. Ravel is the publisher. And it's a look at an experience I had at Army West Point. uh, The 12 Keys uh, to be a leader like they're developing at West Point. I think you'll enjoy the book. In the meantime... Have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Great day in church tomorrow. And we're back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, right here on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando.